Good afternoon. My name is Brett McGarry. Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Greg Mackling once again this week for the next three days. And then it will be the 34th greatest Canadian of all time, Hal Anderson, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, Tristan, I, I don't I can't remember why you're not going to be with me on Thursday and Friday. But right now you're not with me because you are at the museum, the planetarium. And what happened? What was the reaction from the people when the clouds broke just in time? Brett, I, it, it, the, the best way to describe it is you couldn't have timed this better. 12.55 p.m. Let me set the stage for you. 12.55 p.m., uh, we were uh, in the plaza, plaza, hundreds of people here in the plaza, had a live stream of NASA ongoing, dark clouds everywhere, but you could see tiny little blue patches here and there. At 12.56, just just as we were about to reach uh, the maximum extent of the eclipse, uh, right north, like right almost directly above me from where I'm standing, the clouds parted ever so slightly, and you could see just an amazing view of the eclipse. It was spectacular. And the clouds kept parting for a few minutes right at its maximum. And as we speak right now, oh, here it comes again, actually. You might even be able to hear some of the uh, reaction in the background. I can hear uh, the hooting and hollering. Yeah, and, and it was just people cheered. There was tons of excitement in the crowd. Um, I mentioning this to Austin. I forgot to wear my Eclipse glasses for the first few seconds because I, got so, I was so carried away in the scene. And then uh, suddenly I remembered, oh, right, I value my eyesight and I needed to do a show. So I should probably put those on. And, Brett, there's no other way to describe it. Just the crowd here, the plaza, the enthusiasm, the atmosphere. It, it, absolutely spectacular. And, well, and Tristan, I'm grateful that you went out and got those eclipse glasses for us uh, because I had my pair sitting on my desk and I thought, I'm not going to get to use these today, but I figured I'm just going to go out and have a peek. And I got down there and I saw the same hole in the clouds that you were describing. So I put on the glasses and I was able to see the celestial event happening above me. And as I was standing there, a woman I've never met walking by says, how is it? And I said, you want to try them? So I handed her the glasses and she she was, you could hear the how floored she was. It's just, uh, it's one of those kind of, you get a, get a peek into the heavens for just a moment. It really is, and, and I, I don't know what it is. I mean, this has always been, I've always been interested in space and astronomy ever since I was a kid. So just the sight of seeing uh, a unique event in our solar system and being able here to witness it, and also the realization that I may never witness, here in Winnipeg at least, I may, and people around me may never witness anything like this ever again, it, it just it, it, it instills such a sense of awe and such a sense of excitement. Uh, you know, we all worry about the day-to-day minutiae, and we all worry about what happens. You know, we worry we're, what we're going to make for dinner. Are we going to be able to pay our bills? That sort of thing. And yet you see something like this, and even just for a few seconds, none of that seems important because you're witnessing one of the most incredible phenomena you can. Now, I realize that uh, we did not get to see the, the total eclipse here. It was a partial, it was a mostly par- mostly covered, but it was still a partial eclipse here. About and, 75%, I think. Yeah, and I'm just looking to see that it looks like the next solar eclipse uh, will be seven years from now. Like Once again, Manitoba will not be in the path of totality. 
Um, from what I can tell, it's on, on, it looks like Ontario, though. Parts of Ontario might get it. So you, got, you don't have to wait all that long for the next event. Well, yeah, fair enough. But, I mean, uh, like you said, Manitoba will not be in this path. So it might take a bit of travel just to get to somewhere decent. And, again, I don't know personally anyway. I don't know of any other eclipses that will re- result in 75% coverage where you can just go outside your backyard and just take a look. Um, it, again, and, and like I said, just the atmosphere with the hundreds of people in the plaza, the live stream going, and the folks at the Manitoba Museum here did a fantastic job of organizing all this. I mean, I showed up here. It was, it was. Uh, I showed up here at about 11:55 because I spent almost 25 minutes looking for a parking spot mm. because there was that there was that much interest in here, and um, it's it was incredible just to see the turnout and people were everywhere, and. You know, I was even speaking to some of the staff members here at the Manitoba Museum saying, uh, we don't really expect to see anything outside, but sure enough, at 12.56, as if right on cue, the clouds part slightly. And, Brett, I don't know about yourself, but I'm in awe. I really am. It is incredible to see something like that. Well, Tristan, I'm going to let you carry on and enjoy it for a few more minutes before you have to race back here to work. Hopefully it doesn't take you 25 minutes to find a parking spot at Polo Park. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. Okay, what time should we be expecting you, Tristan? Well, I, hope to see, I recorded some audio. I'll see if I can't get maybe one more interview in, and then uh, I hope to be back by about uh, 1.30. And uh, we'll have plenty to discuss then. Okay. And, uh, Brett, I'm looking forward to another fine afternoon with you, sir. All right, Tristan Field-Jones joining us live from downtown Winnipeg. We're at the Manitoba Museum and Planetarium where, once again, the path of this eclipse for us, as far as the, the peak performance, if you will, of the eclipse was at 1257. And as he said, just at 1255, 1256, the clouds started to break. I took a peek. I was here in our building, and I took a peek outside the window, and I saw, looks like the clouds might be breaking right around the sun. So I went outside and had a look in these eclipse glasses, which they they just feel like those kind of plastic 3D glasses you might get in like a cereal box or something like that. But when you put these lenses on your face, everything is completely blacked out. It's You might as well be in a cave. But then you look up at the sun, and there was the eclipse and for me it was kind of neat because every eclipse i've ever seen like right now cnn is on and i see the headline is total eclipse underway in missouri that's the only extent i've ever seen a solar eclipse i've seen lunar eclipses before which are pretty cool but i've never seen a solar eclipse actually looked up and been able to have a look at it so it was neat to be able to see that through these glasses which were i think three bucks or something like that at the manitoba museum You may recall that we told you they had 10,000 of them and they sold out on Thursday. I'm surprised that it, that seems a little early for Winnipeg, doesn't it? I don't know how, what your habits are like, but I'm the guy, if you're selling social tickets, I'm the guy who will buy them on the Friday if the tickets are on, if the social's on the Saturday, even though you've been harassing me for four months to buy a ticket. I'm the worst uh, when it comes to social ticket purchases and with anything. So the fact that they, they were gone by Thursday and not Friday... I find surprising. Tristan was one of those people who went Thursday morning to get the Eclipse glasses. The path of totality includes the state of Nebraska. That is where Scott Young, with the Manitoba Museum, is this afternoon. We are going to check in with him in a moment. CNN was showing some clouds. Hopefully that wasn't 
affecting Scott's view? We'll find out after we look at your forecast, which is coming up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Greg Mackling for the next couple of days. Tristan is at the Manitoba Museum and Planetarium and will be making his way back. Or probably, he says he's hoping to be here by 1.30, but... uh, Took him 25 minutes to find a parking spot downtown, so I'm going to guess I won't be seeing Tristan until 2 p.m. So in the meantime, let's head down to Nebraska, where we are joined live on 680 CJOB by Scott Young, who is the manager of science communication and visitor experiences and astronomer in residence at the Manitoba Museum, Science Gallery, and Planetarium. Scott, you're in Nebraska. Where exactly in Nebraska are you? We're in Grand Island, Nebraska, and uh, we just had uh, a beautiful view of the total solar eclipse. It's just been a great day. Was there? Are there any clouds? There's some light haze that uh, a bunch of us were worried about. We've been watching the weather forecast, wondering whether we need to move. A bunch of people went uh, early this morning and drove off west in quest of better skies, and then we had some people leave uh, half an hour before the eclipse just to try and outrun some local stuff, and we just decided to stick it out. And uh, there's probably still 50 or 60 uh, Canadians all down here in the same spot uh, that uh, that just saw the eclipse. It's just fantastic. So you had a perfectly clear view other than maybe a little bit of haze? There was a little bit of haze, but, you know, as soon as the uh, as soon as soon the um, air started to cool off as the eclipse uh, continued, some of that sort of disappeared. And then as we got right close to totality, the light took on this really, really eerie kind of... Uh, kind of quality was like everything was sort of all orange and green and then it went dark and the hole in the sky opened up this ring of light in the sky the the solar corona during the total solar eclipse was was phenomenal and uh it seemed like time stood still there for a minute um i started taking pictures something happened with the camera and rather than monkey around with the technology i just uh i just started looking at the thing and it was just so beautiful uh unbelievable how long was the totality we had uh, two minutes and 32 seconds, allegedly, although it seems like it went by a lot faster than that. Um, and you could just hear hoots and hollers from all over the place as uh, as people just uh, were overwhelmed emotionally. It, it was a beautiful sight. And um, I hear that uh, it cleared up a little bit in Winnipeg. We were worried that uh, the view there might not be great, but I guess uh, some people got some views from down at the museum, so that's good news too. Well, what happened, Scott, is like right now I'm looking outside and it's it's predominantly cloudy. It's been cloudy, overcast all day and raining. And right at 12.55, a small pocket of sky or of cloud opened up, opened up right around the sun. It was almost like oh, someone punched yeah. a hole through the cloud just so we could see the eclipse for a moment. And then I think the clouds uh, have since uh, engulfed it once more. But just just right in the nick of time, right at 12.57, I went out went outside and was able to see it and uh, couldn't believe oh, it. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, how- it was, it was uh, amazing to watch. And uh, like I said, we, we've been passing um, places along here and people are driving back and forth over the last couple of days looking for the, the best weather prospect. Um, it seems like the entire place down here, like there, there's nobody that isn't talking about the eclipse all the time. The local news is covering it 24/7, and and uh, you know it's just it's just huge business down here. The campground here has been booked up for a year and a half that we're in, and uh, there are still people showing up trying to trying to get places to stay. And they're just uh, like the the local shopping center parking lots are just full of RVs and and stuff like that. So uh, huge amount of people that drove down to see it, and. Uh, now that I had the view, I, I sort of understand why people chase these all over the place. 
Scott Young is our guest. He is with the Manitoba Museum. He's an astronomer, the manager of science communication and visitor experiences. He's in Grand Island, Nebraska, in the path of totality of this eclipse. And Scott, can I gather from what you just said that this is the first total solar eclipse that you've ever witnessed? Well, I saw the one in 1979 in Winnipeg, but I was in grade three and I didn't have a telescope or anything like that. I stayed home and watched it on uh, on TV. But then during the total phase, my mom had somewhere read that it was okay to look at it during totality. So we opened up the, the uh, blinds on the window, and I remember seeing this hole in the sky and this eerie light and just this, this bizarre view. And right then I decided, wow, I, I need to do this. I need to learn about this. So, so that's sort of my, my anniversary date of being an astronomer was during that eclipse. And so uh, it took me a little while to get to the next one, but uh, I'm pretty sure this won't be my last. And sorry, did, just want to make, you said that it is safe to look at it with your naked eye when it's in the totality phase. That's right. If you're in the zone of totality and during those, you know, couple of minutes when the moon is completely blocking out all the bright parts of the sun, um, it is safe to look at. And in fact, I, you know, we, there was a big call of, of filters off just as soon as uh, things were right. And we had about two and a half minutes to look at the sun without the filters. And it just looked like this this hole in the sky with this sort of ghostly white fire uh, ringing it. It was, it was just beautiful. There were some bright red um, solar flares on the edge of the sun that we could see. And uh, so we all cycled through the telescopes. And then uh, what happens is uh, as the moon keeps moving off, um, one little bit of it starts to expose the sun first. And you get this sort of um, gleam of light, which is called the diamond ring, because you have a sort of the ring of fire with, a, with one bright spot in it. Oh, did we? Oh. It was just a, a beautiful sight. So, Scott, uh, for those who maybe aren't, like, are, I'm sure there are some people out there who are kind of going, well, what's a big deal? Why, why is this a big deal? Why should we care about an event like this? Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. First, it's just kind of cool to watch. Um, and you get to sort of feel, oh, yeah, this, there's this universe around us that's bigger than just our petty concerns here on the earth. And, and it's moving and doing things. But more importantly, um, it shows us that science knows what it's talking about in a lot of cases. I mean, scientists calculated where I needed to stand, when I need to be there, and exactly what I needed to do to do to see the total solar eclipse, and they were exactly right. Um, so there's a lot of people who, you know, they don't they doubt science in in a bunch of different cases. Sometimes, you know, in in important cases, and. This is just a reminder for us that, you know, science actually knows what it's talking about. We figured out quite a few things. We don't know everything, but we get, we have a pretty good batting record compared to, you know, tarot cards or crystals or, or whatever else. Um, and, and certainly it's, uh, it's just proof positive that uh, maybe, uh, maybe we need to listen to science in uh, other... Oh, Scott, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, you just cut. You dropped out there for just uh, a second oh, yeah, there. Sorry, yeah. No, no. Hey, no, yeah. no apologies necessary. Uh, well, before I forget to ask you, when I went outside in my excitement, I, I looked up very briefly without the the glasses just for a second. Uh, should I expect my my eyeball to to fall out of my skull now that I looked at the eclipse head no. on? <laughs> no. You know, I mean, everybody's looked at the sun for a few seconds before, and uh, you know that 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 doesn't do permanent damage. Um, the thing is, during an eclipse, people want to do that over and over for like a three-hour period. And it's that repetitive use that, that really does the damage. So, like, I remember when I was a kid, I looked at the sun, like, just, just regular times. You know, I, I didn't go blind. But um, you can't do it repeatedly, and you can't do it over and over again. And we're really not sure exactly what the safe dosage is. So that's why we always tell people, you know, 
wear the glasses and um, you know, protect your vision as much as you can. So I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. The glasses that you had at the museum, they sold out by Thursday. When did you first get those in stock? Because I remember talking to you, uh, you were on our show a couple of months ago, and you said that you were getting them. When did those arrive in stock? They've been in stock for, uh, we've actually had glasses in stock for um, almost a year, um, because we normally stock them just, you know, a few at a time. But we got a big shipment in a good month ago. And uh, they just sat on the shelves there for a little while until the media really started to pick up on the, the fact that this was coming. And once people started to hear about it, it to fly off the shelves. And, and uh, you know, the week leading up, um, I think we went through something like 11,000 glasses. And I think the optometrists that we partnered with had another 5,000 they were giving out. And, you know, they just they just flew off the shelves. I wish we could have brought in more. But, of course, you know, uh, we, can't, we don't have... Uh, deep pockets to buy things and then, you know, get stuck with them. So, oh, we, hey, uh, you had 10,000 is still a lot. Um, we only have time probably for one more question. So, Scott, when is that, do you know when the next solar eclipse uh, of any real significance for us here in Manitoba is going to be? Well, in 2024, there's going to be another one that comes through the United States and actually goes up uh, through Toronto and Montreal area. And that'll be a partial eclipse for us. Um, there's one in a couple of years that goes through Peru and, and um, that one we get a very slight partial for in Winnipeg. But uh, it's really 2024 is to start planning for and to start planning now. All right. Scott Young, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad you got to experience this, man. I know this is what you live for and uh, it's cool. You got to see it in all its glory. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out, too. Thanks a lot. All right. Scott Young with the Manitoba Museum and the Science Gallery and Planetarium. He is their manager of science communication and visitor experiences, an astronomer in residence and a good friend of this radio station. Once again, he joined us from Grand Island, Nebraska, where he got to see the eclipse in its full total glory. Here in Winnipeg, we got a partial eclipse, a 75%. I was able to see it just for a moment. Hopefully you were able to as well because the clouds broke for just a second. It's my understanding that in Minnedosa, for example, they had a great view of the eclipse. So hopefully you got to see it. Tristan Field-Jones got to see it from the planetarium. He's going to rejoin us later on this hour on 680 CJOB. In the meantime, Global News at 1.30, up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones. Well, sort of. He's filling in for Greg Mackling for the next couple of days. He is making his way back from the Manitoba Museum and Planetarium. He was there for their viewing party. They had an auditorium. Well, their their auditorium was set up to watch the live stream of the various spots where the eclipse was reaching its on the path of totality. And then they all went outside into the plaza to watch as the clouds broke for just a few moments right in the nick of time as we reached the maximum coverage here. It was about 75% coverage, and we got to see it. I got to see it as well. Tristan got some of those eclipse glasses for me when he went to the planetarium on Thursday and picked them up, and they are pretty cool. So hopefully you got to see it. I know Amy and Marty over in Minnedosa, they said they had a great view of it. So good for you guys. I'm jealous. And uh, Tristan was able to send in some audio of interviews that he did while he was at the planetarium. So again, these interviews he did were 
prior to the eclipse. So it was one that you'd be able to hear a few minutes of what he gathered. This is Aaron Johnston Weist, who is an animator at the Science Gallery. So uh, today is a really exceptional day. We know that eclipses are super rare, and even though it's not a total solar eclipse, and even though unfortunately it's quite overcast, so we don't have those telescopes out there. Um, we are doing special programming, so that's why our planetarium is free. We have a NASA feed going on, and that's until 2.45. Normally in the date, we are, all of us here who are animators, are sort of catch-alls for anything that might be happening in the science gallery in the planetarium. So sometimes that's just supervising groups of children at the racetrack that we have here. Sometimes it's creating and uh, performing planetarium shows. We do workshops and science demonstrations as well. But today we're all hands on deck, all in the planetarium and auditorium, answering people's questions about the eclipse. All hands on deck, speaking of which, I, just a few minutes ago, I was hearing you guys were determining who would uh, pick the straw to go for lunch. It's really packed here, isn't it? It is. Um, I think part of it, too, uh, is the fact that it is overcast, so we don't have the big crowds outside uh, that we might have anticipated had it been sunny. Uh, but, of course, the museum is the best place to go when it's rainy. So not only do we have that, but we do have some free programming. And, again, this is a really unusual day. It's a really exceptional event. We can predict eclipses hundreds of years in advance, so we knew this one was coming for a while. What were you guys expecting in terms of turnout? Like, when I woke up this morning and I saw the cloudy skies, I thought, oh man, this is gonna be a bummer. But, you know, then I was surprised how much interest there is in spite of the less than ideal conditions. So, I mean, what were you guys at all concerned about that uh, before this event started? Uh, no, we're not super concerned about uh, attendance. Uh, I mean, we knew that we had sold out of 8,000 pairs of eclipse glasses leading up to the event. Unfortunately, people won't get a chance to use them today to view the eclipse, probably. Um, but anytime that you offer really particular programming, uh, really special event stuff, we're always expecting big crowds. So we're expecting to see about 3,000 people here. I believe there's already been a about 1,200 in and out of the planetarium and auditorium today. And of course, we do have uh, a live NASA feed set up on the plaza, so if people don't want to come into the museum, they can stop by and check it out on their way to downtown or back home. And for people who are, might still be interested in, in checking this out, uh, I see a massive lineup here in the basement near the planetarium interest, or, uh, entrance. Excuse me. What is your advice for people who still want to come by? So if you do want to come by, uh, you do need to have a little bit of patience. So we do have both planetarium and auditorium open. We're showing the same feed. We're doing a question and answer period with our staff as well. Um, of course, anyone who's working here today can direct you to someone who knows something about the eclipse. Uh, we're also offering activities for kids. So if you've got little ones with you and you're waiting in line, you can make your own pinhole projectors to take home. They're a really simple craft, but they're one of the safest ways to get a good image of the sun. So you can use them whenever you like, as long as it's not raining. That is Aaron John. Tristan Weist, who is an animator at the Science Gallery at the Manitoba Museum, in conversation with Tristan Field-Jones, a conversation that happened prior to 12.57 p.m., which is the, where the, the eclipse was at its peak coverage. We had 75%, and it was at its peak. He also spoke with Dr. Irene Mestito-Dow, who is an optometrist from Henderson Vision Center with the Manitoba Association of Optometry. Let's hear what she has to say. This has been an event that has been anticipated for a while. I can only imagine... Uh, the questions and the flood of interest uh, you folks have received there. Yes, there's been much interest about this. There has been very a lot of people, thankfully, that are very concerned about what this can do to their eyes, looking for alternatives, especially uh, recently with the eclipse glasses selling out so soon. I guess, unfortunately, a lot of people, I think, thought they could wait till the weekend to go find a pair, and that just increased demand everywhere. Like, every, all the offices are getting phone calls, the museum... Uh, Every Facebook, the posts on Facebook are going. We're going crazy. 
what was that like for members of, of the Manitoba optometrists? Uh, I could only imagine just the requests of, hey, you know where to find these glasses? I mean, that must have been pretty crazy for a bit. The phones were ringing off the hook, I'm not going to lie. They were, we were receiving messages from all over the city that the phones were going off the hook and people keep calling. I know we had to change our message on our, on our actual phones just because the, at least the first line was then that we are out of glasses just to save my staff from having a, a bunch of phone calls coming through because at that point, we, uh, we stopped taking calls when the whole city was sold, sold out. There wasn't anywhere. We couldn't even tell them to go anywhere. Did you expect this kind of reaction? I mean, this seems unprecedented. Um, I did anticipate that there would be a lot of interest. I think we thought we had enough pairs to cover, and I'm not going to lie, like last week at, on Friday, we were concerned that maybe we're not going to be able to get rid of all the glasses, and by Tuesday, that concern was totally out the window as the glasses started flying out the door. So uh, the eclipse, I mean, we only have a little while left for the eclipse, but it is cloudy outside, so who knows if we'll see anything. What's your advice to people who are going out there to see if they can see anything? Uh, well, honestly, I've tried a couple of times, and I haven't been able to see anything. You're probably better to watch it online. Uh, the NASA has a live feed, and I believe there's people, like, from across the country, there's feeds coming from across the country as well that we can watch. I, we've even been getting, from here at the museum, we've been getting messages from people in other parts of Canada that are showing us the, what they're seeing, say, in BC, which was where it started at. That is Dr. Irene Mestito-Dow, who is an optometrist from Henderson Vision Centre with the Manitoba Association of Optometry. Once again, this was a, a brief interview that Tristan Field-Jones conducted prior to the eclipse emerging here in Winnipeg when the clouds broke, broke right... The clouds broke... There we go, at 12.55, just as we reach the peak. Also, want to make sure to direct you to globalnews.ca as well if you want more information on the eclipse. You can see the live stream of the eclipse as it's happening across the path of totality in the United States. And they have information there on when the next solar eclipse is. If you're already looking ahead to the next one, it's in seven years. It's in April of 2024. And I'm just looking at it now. So it says that it's going to slice. This is a story on globalnews.ca that says that the path of the eclipse in 2024 will slice diagonally through North America from the southwest to the northeast, vanishing into the Atlantic Ocean after passing over Newfoundland, according to NASA. So the projected path will mean people in parts of southern Ontario, southern Quebec, New Brunswick, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador will be able to witness totality of the eclipse. Relatively, waiting less than seven years for another chance to see a total solar eclipse isn't so bad. The last one prior to today's was more than 38 years ago in February of 1979. So again, if you want to see the next one, it is in 2024. Let's pause, we'll check our forecast, and then we'll have more on Mackling and McGarry with guest host Tristan Field-Jones, starting after your forecast up next. Hi, Tristan. Uh, you made it back. <laughs> I did. So today I've been sort of reporter and host, and as is typical in radio, I've done a million different jobs. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been an adventurous day for you. <laughs> and I'm out of breath and thirsty, but you know what? Totally worth it. Yeah. Well, you... So you, 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 first of all, you had an adventure trying to find a parking spot. 25 minutes it took you to find a parking spot. Almost. I mean, so 
it's kind of one of these things where one little thing leads to another leads to another. So what happens is I was um, I was already running late to due to certain circumstances. I won't go into detail about that, but anyway, I was already running a little bit late, and then I show up. Uh, to right, you know, there's the par- uh, parking lot right next to the Manitoba Museum, and and there's a bunch of surface lots near there, mm-hmm. full, 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 full. Of course. And then I figured, well, there's the underground parking, which is more expensive, but you know what? No one's going to be in there. Totally full. Uh, and I wander around the Exchange District, like I said, for 25 minutes. I finally found a spot, kind of tucked away in one of those sort of pseudo street back lane type things. And um, I figured, great, and I'm probably five blocks away from the planetarium at this point. So, of course, I go to pay my, uh, to pay the parking using a credit card, and the machine isn't reading my credit card. (laughs) Because, of course, it is. And guess what? It's 12.47 p.m. I'm getting a call, uh, or I'm calling in to our producer, Savannah, because Jeff Courier wants to talk to me. This is at 11.47. Right, exactly. Excuse me, 11.47. Yeah, so while I'm trying to figure out uh, how to use the bloody machine. I'm on the phone with Jeff saying, yeah, Jeff, everything's great over here. I'm near the planetarium. I'm going to be walking it about. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that that's okay. So uh, kind of the magic of the theater of the mind, if you will. Um, and of course, of course, while I'm in the middle of my hit, one of the parking patrol guys come by and my car doesn't have a, a little thing on it yet. A little uh, ticket. Because I haven't paid for it yet. Yep. So in the middle of my hit, I actually go to the guy while I'm on the phone talking to Jeff and trying to do little <laughs> charades to say, no, 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 I'm paying for it. I am paying for it. I'm paying for it. Uh, now, fortunately, I think the guy kind of understood because he saw I was on the phone. Maybe he recognized the CGOB logo and realized I was in the middle of an interview while trying to figure out how to park while trying not to get a parking ticket. Okay. While carrying stuff with me. And then... So, yeah, and then that got sorted out, and then pleasantly, it was far cheaper than I expected it to be. And then I walked to the planetarium, and... Uh, Sounds like you would have been better off just walking to the planetarium from here. Yeah, I can, or even taking the bus. Taking the bus would have been a breeze. And then what happens is, so I show up, and there's people already just outside the Manitoba Museum, uh, and inside kind of the main entrance. Were people sitting on lawn chairs, or what was going on? No, a lot of people were standing, and some of the benches were, were taken up already, uh, just to get an eye on the sky. And what happens is, I sh- so I show up to the reception desk in, on the, in, in the main plaza, and there's people running around everywhere. It's, it's incredibly packed. I don't want to call it chaos. It was an organized chaos, if you will, because the folks at the museum were spectacular. They were fantastic. They told me where to go, and they set up some interviews. Uh, and it was uh, Jody Tresser, one of the folks I spoke to. She was really good at getting everything organized. So... I certainly can't complain about that. And then I head downstairs uh, where the science gallery and the planetarium are, and it's uh, just a wall of people, nothing but people everywhere. And uh, they are actually, they actually had to, there was a line from almost to the outdoor exit from the planetarium entrance. And if you've been in there, that's, I don't know, maybe maybe a couple hundred feet, if you will, and they're only letting a few people in at a time. And the auditorium is also full too, because they have the streams of the NASA the NASA live streams okay. that are on there. Um, and so, and of course, when I'm trying to send in that audio, I move like half a step down, no service. I have to move slightly away, and I'm getting a little bit of service. So again, it's one of these sort of. Uh, it's the sort of the joy of live reporting, if you will. It's it's tiny little things like that where 
uh, you have to deal with it on the fly, but you know, just a lack of service can cause you to change your entire plans and figure out, well, I have to send that audio in <laughs> later. So that's behind the scenes. Um, I think we compare it to, what is it, a duck on, on the surface oh, yeah. of the pond. It's nice and smooth. Below, it's the, the feet are just <laughs> going about like, it, like it's nobody's business. But what happens is, so I spoke to a few members at the Manitoba, or a few staff members at Manitoba Museum, and all of them were saying it's cloudy, we're not going to see anything. And they said, you know, we'll keep the shows going. And they still had a screen in the main plaza, but they said, ah, we're not going to see anything. I figured, you know what, I want to go outside just in case for when me and you do our little preview hit with Jeff. And I figured there's going to be plenty of background noise. There'll be people there. And to my surprise, this was at about 1245. Uh, there were already dozens of people in the plaza just in case something happened. And as the minutes rolled by, more and more people from the street, from the museum, just kind of filtered in. And sure enough, maybe only a minute after, I so 1245, 1246, you start to see tiny little patches of blue sky. Nowhere near where the sun was, but there were little patches out there. And excitement is starting to build. Uh, and there's plenty of kids. There must have been school groups or day camps there, that sort of thing. There's kids running around, and there's plenty of people. And, and a lot of office workers, too. must have been people from the off nearby office towers who were there as well. And suddenly what happens is right where the sun is in the sky. So if you can picture where the plaza is and you know where that sort of dome is in that plaza, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm on one side and looking sort of straight up to the dome, almost straight up to where, where the brightest spot in the sky is. And what happens is 1255, it's still cloudy, but then you start to see you know, it, it's not the dark gray, it's the sort of light gray and then white, and it starts to fade where that where the sun is. 12.56 p.m., almost on cue for the maximum extent of what we'd see. Clouds part ever so slightly, and the sun comes out just for a few seconds, and you get an amazing view of an incredible, uh, an, an incredible event. And it was, you couldn't have timed it better. If you weren't there right at that specific moment looking up, you would not have seen it. And for a few minutes, I mean, maybe three or four minutes, the clouds parted and you could see brief glimpses of it, enough for the sun to even cast shadows. Yep. Uh, and then after that, I haven't seen the eclipse since. But just for a very brief moment, right when it was at its maximum, you could see it. And it was incredible. And just to for the timing there... And for the hundreds of people, there were hundreds of people in that plaza. For the number of people who were there just seeing it, it was, there, again, it was amazing. I can't, I, I'm instilled with a sense of awe because it is something that you don't see very often. And just the, just the way it timed out and the way the, everything played out was fantastic. So despite all the little difficulties, Brett, and despite the not great, not so good weather conditions, for those who showed up, it was quite the show. Well, and I'm just, uh, yeah, it looks like the 12.57 p.m. indeed was when we reached the peak, the maximum at point. It was actually 76% coverage here in Winnipeg. It ends at 2.15 p.m. So it is, I'm looking out the window right now. I can't see the entire sky, but we're, I'm looking sort of to the east and to the northeast, and it's cloudy everywhere. But maybe where the sun is, you might see some uh might be able to see it. We spoke with uh, Amy and Marty in Mendoza. They had a great view. So uh, wherever you are, if you want to see the eclipse and you do have some uh, 
blue sky, then it ends at 215. Just make sure that you have the safe lenses to do so. Of course, the welding mask was, uh, you had to have at least 14, the range. Yes, 14. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Um, we just have a couple of minutes here. Shall, so shall we hear what Jody has to say? Certainly, yeah. Who is Jody, by the way? Uh, she was uh, Jody Tresser. She's uh, one of the media coordinators there. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, she was fantastic in organizing the interviews and getting everything set up. And like everyone else there, she was running around like a chicken with her head cut off. But uh, yeah, she this was right after the peak of the eclipse. All right. We're thrilled at the turnout, even though there was uh, rain early this morning. Uh, people came down to watch our live feeds from NASA, filled up the planetarium and the auditorium several times over, got a little bit of an education. Some of the kids came and made some pinhole um, projectors for next time, um, which is going to be 2263. Um, but uh, uh, then I just found out while I was downstairs <laughs> managing the crowds that the clouds parted uh, for just a minute at the moment of our 70% coverage, our full coverage that we're going to get. Um, and so a great number of people were on the plaza at that time and uh, saw the eclipse. I, I heard there was cheering and uh, I think, you know, it's a, for some people it's a chance of a lifetime. Uh, and I think just to highlight how busy it is uh, over here at the Manitoba Museum, I mean, you were downstairs watching, and I know you guys were deciding who would go for lunch. Just paint a picture of how busy it's been today already. Oh, yeah. We had uh, people, uh, you had a plan, but our plan was very much contingent on it being sunshiny. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we had a backup plan, uh, but we realized that the amount of people that came, despite the fact that it was raining, was a little more than we were prepared for. So people from every department of the museum uh, helped pitched in to make sure that people knew what was going on. In the Jody Tresser with the Manitoba Museum. And once again, we spoke with Scott Young earlier. He is the manager of science communication and visitor experiences, as well as astronomer in residence at the Manitoba Museum. He is in Grand Island, Nebraska, in the path of totality. We will move on from, as CNN is calling it, the eclipse of the century. And we're going to instead talk about the crisis in North Korea. One headline reads... As the North Korean crisis escalates, Canada must step up. We will have that discussion after Global News at 2 o'clock on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field Jones filling in for Greg Mackling for the next couple of days. And before we move on from the eclipse, I just want to put this to you. I, I remember being in grade 3 in, I guess this would have been 1985 or 86. I, can't, I don't even remember what grade it was in. It was in elementary school, and I'm pretty sure there was a partial solar eclipse. I'm just wondering if, if you can confirm that for me. Uh, maybe I'm just imagining it. I don't know, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure there was an eclipse in the uh, solar, a partial solar eclipse in the 80s. I just can't remember when that was. So if you remember when that was, can you just shoot me a text at 204-780-6868. Thank you very much. Now, Tristan, we shall move on from the eclipse. Well, one of the other big stories that's still ongoing uh, in spite of uh, the... Um, uh, the eclipse today, which again was spectacular, uh, but the ongoing crisis involving North Korea and the United States uh, and the rest of the world, frankly, uh, we've seen tensions grow uh, significantly over the last little while with, you know, North Korea threatening to, you know, send missiles uh, or shoot missiles just off the coast of Guam, saying they have attack plans in place. It's been a little bit more uh, concerning than previous events, because I know a lot of people tend to dismiss what North Korea has to say, but this time I think we're taking things a little bit more seriously because they might actually be able to back it up at least somewhat. So one of the aspects of this is can we 
avoid a conflict? Is it at all possible to uh, have discussions and dialogue with the North Koreans to avoid something serious uh, from happening? And Brett, what are the angles that we've heard uh, from some of our listeners? And when I was filling in for you a couple of weeks ago with Greg Mackling, we also touched on this too. Could Canada step up and become... Uh, sort of fulfill a diplomatic role in this, sort of like Lester, Lester B. Pearson during the Suez crisis, um, and which I believe won, a, uh, won him a Nobel Peace Prize. So could Canada step up to the plate and help us out? In fact, there was an article in McLean's recently that suggested that Canada should, in fact, do so. Well, I'm not an expert when it comes to this, but we do have an expert on the line in the name of Colin Robertson. He's a former diplomat. He's with the Canadian Defence and Foreign Affairs Institute, um, and Colin, before we get to uh, the issue at hand here, I understand you were in South Korea fairly recently? That's right. I was in South Korea at the end of April for 10 days. What was the, the atmosphere like there? Well, worried, but the South Koreans, and I was in Seoul, which is a city of 20 million, the, the big city obviously in Korea, but they're only 34 miles from the border. And uh, I'll, I'll just give you one little vignette. I was was in seeing a very senior person in the foreign ministry. And on the way out, I spotted what I thought were goggles. And I said, what are those? And he said, oh, those are the gas masks by the elevator. And I said, gas masks? He says, yes, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, he doesn't want us, but he wants the, what we've created. And so that we don't fear a nuclear bomb. What we fear is a gas or chemical warfare, because then it just takes us out and he and his folks can move in. And, it, and then he laughed and he said, but we've been living with this for 30 years. So that summed up, in a sense, uh, almost a fatalism. But uh, since you've still got to get on with life, uh, Korea is a remarkably dynamic uh, country in North Asia. And, of course, the only country in, in Asia with which Canada has a free trade agreement. Now, Colin, uh, I know we discussed this uh, over email, but uh, when I posed the question to you of the role Canada could potentially play uh, in perhaps easing tensions, you weren't uh, uh, as, uh, maybe not optimistic isn't the right word, but you weren't just so sure we could step up to the plate, so to speak. What prevents us from doing that? Well, I think uh, that what basically prevents us from stepping up is that we don't have the place or standing with the North Koreans. We, uh, if, if you want to play an intermediary role, you normally have to know both parties. And while we have good relations with the South Koreans, so do a lot of other countries, but really since 2009, we've not had any contact with North Korea. We did a couple of weeks ago when we sent our national security advisor in and he was able to negotiate the release of Pastor Lim, which was a good thing for obviously the pastor. And it's good that we had some uh, contact again, but under the uh, Harper government, we constrained our engagement with uh, Korea for good reasons, because of, of their uh, their missile and uh, nuclear uh, program. But it meant that our ambassador, who is resident in Seoul, wasn't able to go north, except on a, a, a small group of, of subjects of which the North Koreans weren't interested in talking about, such as human rights and consular affairs. And so we don't really bring much to the table. And uh, if you want to play an intermediary role, you have to bring something there and you have to have place and standing. We're not part of the six-party talks, which includes Russia, China, Japan, South Korea, and the United States that are trying to uh, 
address the problem of uh, North Korean nuclear uh, ambitions and missile building. And, and that hasn't been meeting for about six years either. So it is, it's not a place in which we probably, we would go in, but we'd be, I think we'd be regarded as a bit naive and, uh, and not terribly helpful. Colin, it's Brett McGarry here. Just wondering, you mentioned uh, something about a, somebody saying, oh, well, we've been dealing with this now for something like 30 years. It feels to me like North Korea has been posturing for, for what feels kind of like forever. That's right. I, th- I think that remember at the uh, at the time of the division in 1953. Because remember there were uh, 2,500 Canadians went over there, and there's Canadian graves there. We went over as part of the UN force. The uh, the, the the time North Korea had the bigger economy. Well, now the South Koreans have eclipsed them many times older. Over it, it really is. They call it the Hermit Kingdom, and it, it only uh, it subsists on uh, Chinese food and fuel, and the Chinese themselves are happy to have labor, some call it slave labor, working in China in part in payment, but they don't want the situation to get out of hand because they fear a massive refugee problem on their their own border. So they just simply tried to contain things. Colin, um, how do you see this situation ending? I, you know, I think a lot of us are concerned for sure, but we don't expect it to end in conflict, but I think there's a little more concern. But how do you see this? Well, Tristan, I think you're right. We, we, we should be concerned because in the past decade, and particularly in the last couple of years, under Kim Jong-un, who's the, the third of the dynasty, uh, the North Koreans now have the capacity to send a missile which could reach North America with a, a, a warhead that would uh, cause terrible devastation because it would be a nuclear warhead similar to the kind of devastation we saw in Hiroshima or Nagasaki after the the war. The the danger for Canada, it's not that we're a target, it's just that the the uh, the aim of these uh, missiles, as uh, uh, George W. Bush once said to Stephen Harper, he said they may be aiming for Seattle or Los Angeles, but could it easily go astray and head for Calgary or Edmonton, which of course makes an argument for Canada to consider ballistic missile defense simply as an insurance policy against this kind of contingency. And they say it is more serious because North Korea is effectively now a nuclear power. If North Korea were to to pick a fight, so to speak, do they have the military might to fight off the eventual retaliation? They have the military might to cause a tremendous amount of mayhem before they would be, as they would be, uh, subdued. They have, as I mentioned, South Korea, or Seoul, which is 30 miles from the, the demilitarized zone, the border. On the other side, there's a tremendous amount of, of, of arsenal cannons and things which could reach the city. And they do war games. And the, when they do these war games, the, uh, the civilian casualty from any kind of conflict with North Korea is, uh, is horrific. And so you want to avoid that. And then, you, of course, you have the added now uh, uncertainty of these of these missiles with uh, armed with uh, nuclear warheads which uh, can can go places where we don't want them to go and uh, so so yes it is more serious the it is from the, uh, the Kim Jong Un the current North Korean uh, autocrat it's his insurance policy from the kind of regime change that he witnessed uh, in Libya with Muammar Gaddafi and then in Iraq with Saddam Hussein 
and that's basically what what he wants this for it's to demonstrate to his people that that they they have some place even though that their conditions are extremely miserable now you mentioned that uh, there's not diplomatically there isn't a whole lot that canada can do but on the flip side uh, what can the canadian government do when it comes to situation like this i mean if our cities are threatened even inadvertently by an unstable regime what can the government do to protect its citizens well, I think that's a very good question, Tristan. I think the first thing we should we should be looking at again is ballistic missile defense. We've endorsed it for the rest of the NATO alliance, and the Europeans have uh, have embraced uh, ballistic missile defense. Israel, of course, uses the Iron Shield to ward off missiles that uh, come from Gaza and other places, and it's worked pretty effectively for them. It's it's not perfect, and the United States will be the first to recognize that they're trying to improve it because they feel vulnerable, but I think it's probably something that Canada wants to take a hard look at and probably sign on for for exactly that reason that you point out. It's an insurance policy for Canadians. In terms of could we be useful in the longer term in North Korea, having just sent our national security advisor over? We could, but we would have to change that policy of controlled engagement that is carried on from the Harper government, which the Trudeau government hasn't changed. I think it would be, my view is always, you're far better to engage. If you want to bring something to the table, you have to have have been at the table. I would argue for the same reasons we should open up relations with with, uh, Iran. It's not a seal of good housekeeping, but it, it does allow you to engage and be helpful in a situation where the United States or Korea might say, okay, who are our friends who could actually maybe talk to the North Koreans? Right now, we're not there, so we can't do that. Colin Robertson is our guest. He is a former diplomat and current vice president of the Canadian Defence and Foreign Affairs Institute. And Colin, what is Canada's relationship like with South Korea um, as uh, tensions continue to rise with North Korea? It's uh, it's very good. It's it's one of our closest uh, sort of friends and and partners in uh, in in North Asia. We have a significant trade, and that trade is expanding. You've got uh, beef and pork from Manitoba that are exported to South Korea, for example. And uh, the, uh, the there's a new president, President Moon, and Prime Minister Trudeau has invited him to visit Canada, and I suspect he probably will, probably before the uh, UN. Uh, General Assembly meeting in September. There's uh, a significant Korean diaspora in uh, Canada, most of course from from the uh, the south. And there's uh, several thousand Canadians uh, living in Korea. Many of them teaching English as a second language. And it's a it's a good place for us because we have this free trade agreement for us to gain access to other parts of Asia. They're they're a member of ASEAN, and so from a Canadian perspective, it's a solid, reliable partner and friend. Now, if Canada does step in and in any capacity uh, with North Korea, does it does it then make our country a target for North Korea? Right now, they're finger-wagging against the United States, but could they decide to maybe take aim at us as well? Well, with Kim, Kim Jong-un is irrational and unpredictable. Uh, only predictable in the sense that he wants to, to maintain his uh, tight grip on North Korea. So that's uh, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, there are, he has had the capacity in the past to do a lot of mayhem, particularly on uh, 
South Koreans. He, he sent assassins into Burma, for example, and took out part of their cabinet. Uh, some of his assassins and that of his father and grandfather were responsible for the assassination of a number of South Korean uh, leaders. So he, he is prepared uh, recently, for example, in, in Malaysia, he used uh, some form of uh, poison to kill his stepbrother. And so he, he is something out of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sorry, I like just I like the description. Uh, that's uh, quite accurate, I think, uh, considering the, a real life Game of Thrones. Ugh. Colin Robertson, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the insight and your time, sir. Brett Tristan, thank you. All right, Colin Robertson is former diplomat and current vice president of the Canadian Defense and Foreign Affairs Institute, talking about the North Korean crisis as it continues to escalate. What should Canada's role be in? The discussion. We'll have a look at your forecast coming up next. Brett McGarry, Tristan Field Jones. We think I think we may have figured out the the partial eclipse that I was referring to. Uh-huh. I asked listeners to help me figure out when, because I I think I would have been in, in grade three. I think it was around eight years old, and I know I'm almost certain there was a partial eclipse. I didn't get to see it. They kept us all away from the windows, and they pulled the blinds down, and they so I I didn't get to see any of it. I don't know if it was dark outside. I know nothing. And we went to, Tristan helped me find this list on Wikipedia of the eclipses in the 20th century. And somebody said, there was a text that came in that said, I remember an eclipse in the mid 80s, got to get out of class to watch it. And he, this person says, grade three for me, I think. So we think we've narrowed it down to October 3rd, 1986. There was an eclipse then that pro- that would have been partially visible in Winnipeg. So... That's kind of neat. Only, yeah, only uh, about fifty percent. So only about half the sun would have been blocked uh, at the uh, at the time of this eclipse. But um, it, uh, yeah, that, that if that that's probably the one you're thinking of. Uh, again, the one we saw today of seventy five percent, roughly, you will not see something like that in Winnipeg for a while. Uh, I mean, certainly we've seen them beforehand, but not of that magnitude. And and just a few years uh, after. This eclipse, I think it was in 1989, uh, there was another one here in Winnipeg, but it was only about 30%. Yeah, so I think this is the the one that we saw today was the most uh, significant, I suppose, that 76% coverage. Mm-hmm. So, as as mentioned, we were going to move on from the eclipse. Just wanted to sort of put a, put a dot on that eye, as it were. So thanks for your help. To you who sent me a text at 204-780-6868. Still to come... This afternoon, this past weekend, I went to an event, Tristan, on Saturday right. at Fort Gibraltar, which was cool unto itself. It was the first ever Winnipeg Beer Festival. So we're going to talk, uh, get a debrief with the organizer, Sean Branson, because we had him on our show about a month ago, and we just thought, well, we'll do a debrief. I was at the event. It was really cool. Kevin Bergen from The Main Ingredient was also there. The main oh, fabulous. Ingredient heard on the weekends on 680 CJOB. And I, I don't know the last time that I actually went. Like, I don't remember the last time I have been to Fort Gibraltar. Maybe for Festival du Voyage in 2003 or something. I don't know. So it was just cool to be able to go to there, to that location. It's a nice place for an event. So we'll talk about that. And he's going to tell us something that I think you might like, Tristan, because I know you enjoy healthy food. <laughs> he's going to tell us about an, I mean, yes. about an upcoming event called Poutine Cup. So, oh my. yeah. So, I, you know, poutine, I've got a mixed relationship with poutine. Um, 
if it's well done, uh, and I'm taught to, like sometimes the fries are so soggy that's you know like uh, having a tomato. You like crispy fries. I prefer the fries crispy with just enough gravy and nice little cheese curds. Okay. But but if the poutine isn't well done, then I'm not a fan of it. Okay. So we'll learn about that, and then I just I need to quickly rant about how. My weekend was kind of ruined because of a spoiler that happened that my, I was waiting for Game of Thrones and I still enjoyed it, but there was a spoiler that took me right out of it. So Another spoiler? Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk oh, about no. that. We'll talk about that after the news, which is up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones in for Greg Mackling this week. And last week he was in for or for me. So you're just sort of doing all sorts of... Uh, yeah. And musical then, chairs. And then Thursday and Friday, it's going to be, because I'll be behind the board, I'll be producing a few things. It'll be the one and only number 34, Hal Anderson. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty cool. That's I'm a little jealous, I must admit. Yeah, it'll be a fun experience, so we'll do that Thursday, Friday, but I got a couple more days of TFJ. And right now, we want to, we, we often get pitched uh, great ideas from all sorts of people, and one of them came from BMO. And this is in relation to... How the sandwich generation and financial care for aging parents as well as their own kids. How do you juggle all that without putting a dent in your own savings if you are in the sandwich generation? So our guest is Amy Dietz-Graham, who is an investment advisor with BMO Nesbitt Burns, and she joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Amy, where have we reached you today? Are you in Toronto? I'm in Toronto. Thanks well, for having me. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate the time, Amy. And first of all, why don't we just uh, start with one of the an easy question here. What exactly is the sandwich generation? So the sandwich generation tends to be people who are mid-40s to early 60s who find themselves in the situation where they have to financially help their parents. They've got aging parents where they might need to help out not only financially, but perhaps time invested in terms of health care and taking them to appointments. And then they're also, they still have kids that, are, that probably haven't left the nest yet. So they find themselves kind of pinned in between in that stressful situation of being pulled every which way, usually during their busy, you know, p- busy peaks of their career as well. Why is this becoming an issue nowadays? I know I've heard in the past uh, bits and pieces about the sandwich generation, but it seems as if it's becoming much more of an issue uh, nowadays. I think a couple of reasons. Um, People are living a lot longer, um, and so they're requiring more assistance um, as, as they're living longer. But then also, you know, couples are having children later, and kids aren't leaving home as early as they used to. It's often, you know, normal to find that your child that's 25 is still at home. So I guess maybe what do you have some basic tips that you can offer someone who might find themselves in that kind of a situation? I think a big, big part is having that communication, um, especially with aging parents, is understanding what have they planned for. You know, what are their wishes? Do they want in-home care? Are they looking for long-term care? How do they feel about going to a facility? And understanding how much time is going to be committed to you. And if you have siblings, speaking to them as well as how you can share share that responsibility. Um, on speaking to your kids, it, it's setting the expectation of how they can pitch in. I know a lot of pa- parents today feel, you know, they should pay for their undergraduate degree, and, and that can be quite costly. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying to your kids, you know, I have the expectation of you to get a summer job and to really pitch in and contribute. So getting on the same page and having a clear and open dialogue would be, you know, a number one priority. What are some of the most common medical costs associated 
uh, with the sandwich generation and aging parents. And I'm wondering, are we doing enough in terms of making sure those people are properly covered uh, for insurance or whatever they need? And that's a really key point is really figuring out, you know, considering long-term care insurance, if they do need to go into a home care facility, um, you know, getting into some of the publicly funded ones, there's a really long waiting list. And perhaps you want, you know, a different standard of care where you want to pay a little bit more, but have you planned for that? So looking at, you know, insurance as an option and really how much are those things going to cost? Even home assistance, you know, just having somebody to come in to help with the basic necessities, you know, looking at those costs, um, you know, medical equipment or supplies, things of that nature can really add up. Long-term uh, care insurance, that's not something that I've ever thought about. Can you tell us a little bit more, just simply what is it? So it's really to plan for, you know, if you're not able to handle the basic necessities of life, you know, feeding yourself, dressing yourself, and what have you, and if you do need to go into a facility, you can purchase insurance that can help cover that cost. All so right. something to explore and to see if it, if it makes sense. So if I'm in a, uh, in a sandwich, part of the sandwich generation, I've got to take care of my parents, I've got to take care of my kids, and I hadn't really prepared for that. Uh, for that financial burden, what are some things that I can do to try to at least alleviate the burden upon myself as I try to help both my kids and my parents? I think the first part is setting a time with your advisor and, and having that discussion, that open dialogue to say, here's where I'm at and here's what my priorities are, but where do I start? Um, because it really comes down to planning. You know, how much are you going to save for these different things? How much can you contribute without forgetting about yourself? Because at some point you're going to want to retire. So it's how do you make sure that you're balancing all of these things, but not forgetting about where you are at the end of the day at it too. So what uh, we mentioned what we can do if we didn't do enough preparation, but let's say, for instance, uh, you're in your mid-30s or even your late 20s and you think your parents may need care, care later on, what are some ways to go about uh, making sure that you have some money uh, set aside as like saving for any other account? You got it. So setting aside, a, you know, an emergency plan or a just-in-case plan. And I think one of the biggest things that, that you can do is to really talk to your parents about it. I know that it's usually that uncomfortable conversation. You know, I don't want to talk about if they're not well or if they were to pass on. Um, but it's really to, to start that conversation to say, you know what, I, I want to be, you know, I want to have an understanding, you know, are your wills up to date? Who's the power of attorney? Um, because we find a lot of people are often surprised when, when things like this come up, um, and that can just add to the stress. So being prepared and having an understanding of what plans they have in place, and if they don't, then you can work together on coming to a solution um, so you're not caught off guard. Amy Dietz Graham, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks so much. All right. Amy Dietz Graham is an investment advisor with BMO Nesbitt Burns, joining us from Toronto today to talk about how the sandwich generation should get ready for financial care for their aging parents and their own children without putting a dent into their savings. The number is 204-780-6868. Are you in the sandwich generation? And is this something that you are dealing with or are you potentially maybe about to enter that you know she sort of said it's generally it's people in their mid 40s to their 60s maybe you are approaching that and it's something that's on your mind or maybe it's something that you're in the that you're dealing with right now it's uh you know because with people a living longer um 
this is, I think, is a problem. I don't want to use the word problem. It's a situation that is only going to expand over the next few years. Is this, and, and Brett, I'm curious because I know that, I mean, you'll be approaching that age group soon. Is this something that you've you've kept at the back of your mind that worries you at all? I have thought about it, yeah. And I, I don't think that, I, I, I almost feel guilty whenever I think about that. I don't want to think about the idea of my parents aging to the point where right. I have to take care of them. But ultimately, they, they, they take care of us when we come into the world and we take care of them as they go out of the world. And that's a, even just saying that right now, it's just such a morbid thing to think about. And I don't want to think about it. And mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Uh, But I think you have to think about that kind of stuff because it's just a part of life. I don't have any children. So I guess technically I would not be in a sandwich generation unless you, you know, you consider, unless you're just having like a, 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 just one slice of bread. I'd, then I guess I'd be the, the the peanut butter on the right. The, I don't know. I'm not sure uh, where that was going. But I don't really. I don't really either. I, I took right. a swing sure. of the mess. No, Justin. it's okay. The train went right off the cliff and caught fire too. So that yeah. was great, Brett. I I really enjoyed that. Actually, I, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed right. the, the way that you just described it. Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight is the number to call if you are in the sandwich generation. If you are having to take care of both your children and your parents. I'd love to hear your feedback on how you deal with it. If there's any, what challenges have you had to face in going through this? You can text us at that number. You can call us at that number, 204-780-6868. You can also email Tristan at cjob.com or Brett at cjob.com. We'll have a look at your forecast coming up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones. Oh, my leg just cramped up, Tristan. Are you okay? Does that ever happen? My hamstring just cramped up, so I had to open my leg up. We're we're talking about the sandwich generation, and and I asked Brett if he's worried about taking care of his parents. Forget taking care of his parents, Brett. Maybe you need to look at taking care of yourself first. I'm trying to take better care of myself, Tristan, but... uh, Hey, so my leg cramped up. Big deal. Muscles cramp sometimes. We have Mike on the line here. Hey, Mike. Good day. Um... Been there and done that. Put both my parents in the ground already. But before that all happened, um, the advice I can give to the listener is: if your parents are frail or living in a two-story house and they're having a, their mobility becomes an issue, liquid sell the house and liquidate everything into cash because the cash you can move easily, and then you don't pay tax on it. You can they can gift you the cash, and you don't pay tax on it. And then when it comes time to put them in a home, when they do the means test on them they'll have no means. So you get a different rate as when it starts from the old folks' homes or from the care homes. When you say they do a means test, what is that? They, they, they You bring them their, your parents' T4s and they want to know how much asset you have. So if you show lots of property and RRSPs and, and lots of cash assets, you pay a different price for care than you would if you were, in, if you were insolvent. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, that is good to know. So, and and Mike, do you know if uh, do they determine the price based on different levels of income or different levels of assets, or is it just you know? Yeah. So, if, for example, if say you were a homeless person and you lived on the streets your whole life, eventually, when you get put into a home, the state will pay for you. Right. So, in an instant where um, I knew some people and I gave them some advice, they moved some. They moved all of the assets of her of their of the surviving mother. She had no assets. She was basically became a ward of the state, and then 
she got put into the same home as as my parents, and that was one, that was how they had to pay. Basically, your Canada pension covers the cost of their staying. You don't get any money. So I learned that and did the same in my scenario. So I didn't have to basically made my parents a ward of the state, but I had cash assets, liquid cash, to provide for their wants and needs. All right. Mike, I was just going to ask, um, for uh, not financially, but emotionally, was that at all difficult to, to do? No, because not everybody has a Norman Rockwell childhood, and my parents were kind of awful people, and I kind of got stuck with it because my sister lived in Vancouver and wanted nothing to do with it. So as a pragmatic businessman, I just looked at it as a, as a, as a transaction, something I, ha- I, got, I had to do. Wow. So, yeah, not everyone's life is, is parents are nice people. Yeah, well, that that is uh, yeah, that is a fair point there, Mike. Uh, thank you very so, much. All right, and you guys have a great day. Thank you for the feedback, Mike. We really do appreciate the the feedback and the the the, the frank honesty sure. that we just heard there, saying, "Hey, I didn't really like my parents. I had to do it, so I did it." And uh, there's some interesting advice there. That's stuff that I never would have thought of because, as I pointed out, I haven't really had to think about that stuff. We want to switch gears. We've got a few minutes left this hour. Want to switch gears and. Uh, We've discussed already Shadow Davis, for example, earlier today, spoke with Mike Armstrong from Global National about a situation that happened in Quebec City over the weekend. So here's Dan Spector from Global News in Quebec City. Just uh, reset the table for a moment. The main tourist district in Quebec City, the Grand Allée, in chaos. People wearing black, faces covered. It started as a peaceful counter-protest against a planned demonstration from an anti-immigration group called La Meute, or the Wolf Pack. Uh, I'm born in Montreal. I know Italian. I know a lot of people. We are not racist. We are just against Islam. They say they're worried about the imposition of Sharia law, about halal food. They're also upset about the recent influx of illegal immigrants across the U.S. border into Quebec. Hundreds of anti-fascist protesters, many with faces covered, many coming from Montreal, chanted slogans denouncing La Meute. And we're here to send a loud and clear message of welcome to immigrants and refugees, welcome to Muslims, welcome to Haitians, welcome to migrants, and a message against racism. They're white supremacists, they're Nazis, and uh, it's important for everybody to come out and show that they don't support that. Meanwhile, hundreds of members of La Meute stayed inside a parking garage for hours. But the far-right protesters trickled out here and there. But when the anti-fascist protesters clad in black started marching, things got out of hand. Police declared the protest illegal. They were met with fireworks, beer bottles, chairs. This Quebec City resident gave protesters a piece of his mind. I knew I knew it can't touch me probably because I have 64 years old. A Global News camera was deliberately smashed by a group of protesters. But as chaos took over the streets, Lemut was stuck underground and they were angry. They want war, they're gonna get war. The anti-fascists continued to wait for them to come out. A standoff, with police doing their best to keep the two sides apart. Dan Spector, Global News, Quebec City. So, Tristan, uh, just this past weekend, for example, we had a situation in Boston where there was uh, there was a rally, a conservative rally where a few dozen people got together to have a rally. And they were also very quick to say, look, we are not associated with these 
neo-Nazi groups, these white supremacy groups that took part in this situation in Charlottesville, but they, they were on the, the rights, the, the political right, and they were having a, a rally. At least they wanted to. It shut down after not even an hour in because where there were a few dozen conservative people having a protest, there were thousands, tens of thousands of counter-protesters took to the streets. There was some tension, but no real violence. I think there were about two dozen people who were arrested. Uh, one of the counter-protesters yanked an American flag out of an, out of an elderly woman's hands, and she stumbled and fell. So the counter-protesters were, were causing some problems there. And then here in Quebec, we see this situation where this group La Mutte, which I will will admit, I don't know, I've never, I've never heard of them. Yeah. yeah, and same here. I'm in that, I'd never heard of them either. But they, they decide they're going to hold this rally, and then they end up confined to this underground parkade because the counter-protesters came out, and this anti-fascist group who claims to be in the counter-protest, I wonder if they were just there to instigate, uh, because that often happens. But then you have the situation where the violence erupts in Canada, and it's now getting to a point where I'm starting to wonder what good any of these protests are doing. Well, especially, and it, this is something that's that's very important to remember. We have freedom of assembly here in Canada, uh, which allows for peaceful demonstrations and protests. The key word, peaceful. Now, ultimately, it's... Um, you look at a lot of these examples, and, and frankly, we're seeing this on both ends of the spectrum here. And I'm not at all equating what the neo-Nazis did in Charlottesville to what happened in Quebec City by any means. The, what happened in Charlottesville was a disgrace. The, there were neo-Nazis, neo white supremacists, I mean, you name it. It was, it would, it, it, there is no defending what happened there. And from my perspective, anyway, that's pretty one-sided when it comes to that. But now we've got counter-protesters, possibly as a reaction to what happened in Charlottesville, not as extreme. They're not running cars into people, but they're not. Their tactics aren't much better. And from my perspective, is it's very important to remember that we live in a democracy. So, so you have the right to gather peacefully. And the thing is, if there's a movement or if there's a group of people you don't like, like if you think that the folks who are against Islam, uh, if you think that they're wrong or you think that what they're doing uh, isn't according isn't right according to your beliefs or your values. In a democracy, the beauty of a democracy is you have the freedom and the ability to call them out. You don't have the right to assault them, to yank a flag out of their hands. You don't have the right to do any of that. But you you have a right to counter-protest so long as it's peaceful assembly. And protesters, counter-protesters, whatever, need to remember that. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you are on. You need to remember that it is peaceful assembly. And the moment that you resort to violence or any tactics that can cause injuries or result in a confrontation, uh, effectively, that freedom, in my view, is revoked. Tristan Field-Jones is his name. Brett McGarry is my name. Global News at 3 o'clock is up next. It is Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones in for Greg Mackling for the next couple of days. Now for this next segment, Brett... Do you have any quote involving Homer Simpson and beer? Uh, no, I don't. I guess I probably should have done that. Well, it, like, it, that's one of his trademark lines. Mm, beer. Well, there you go. I didn't need to grab the audio. You just did it for me. Well, okay. It's that not was pretty as good. special or magical or 
I don't know. I've never heard you do that before. I'm I, I I'm genuinely excited by what just happened. There. I got say, to see you do a voice. Doesn't he say mm, donuts and stuff? I don't know. I don't he watch says, this. Mm, he says mm, lots of things. He also That's says mm, hog fat at one point. <laughs> so of course he does. Yeah. Uh, the reason why we've just gone down that rabbit hole is because we had an. I went to an event on Saturday at Fort Gibraltar, the first ever Winnipeg Beer Festival. Now we talked about this back on, it looks like it was on August 1st, Tuesday, August 1st. We had Sean Branson in. He is the caterer at, at Fort Gibraltar and organizer of the event and since I was there on Saturday I thought we would bring him on and just do a quick debrief. Sean Branson, welcome back to the program, and congratulations. Uh, from where I was standing, it seemed like a wild success. Yeah, it was a great event. Uh, we had 550 people uh, attending the first annual uh, Winnipeg Beer Festival, so we were really excited. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Duff Beer won all three awards, so we kind of uh, ruined it because we wanted to be a local event, but Homer said we had to offer it. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding, just kidding, by the way. <laughs> so for those who I, – I, I, yeah. I've actually never had Duff Beer. Have you ever had Duff Beer? Because I know it's been no. out there in, in some form or another. Yeah, no, I uh, haven't had the uh, privilege, but, man, there was some amazing beers on Saturday uh, uh, from our local Winnipeg brewers, and uh, they did us proud. There was uh, some great selections there. So for those who maybe missed the chat that we had back on August 1st, what is the Winnipeg Beer Festival? Because I think a lot of people might think, well, don't we already have a beer festival at uh, Bell MTS Place? So what's uh, yeah. what's the Winnipeg Beer Festival? Well, we, we have um, we organize events. I'm the caterer at Fort Gibraltar as well as own Promenade Cafe and Wine and Provisions. And one of the things that we do at Fort Gibraltar is we do an event called Poutine Cup where the restaurants compete. They give their version of poutine, uh, and actually we announced today on our website that Poutine Cup is coming up September 14th, so that's exciting. But we wanted to, to do another event, and with the exploding craft beer scene, we wanted to create an event where people could come and, and have 20 samples of the best brews uh, that are available in Winnipeg. And, it, and we had to hold on a couple of years to have it because we need to get some more craft brewers in our market, but now we have some fantastic uh, fantastic breweries and some some great beer being made in in Winnipeg. Well, and just as uh, I can't remember the last time, honestly, that I have been to Fort Gibraltar outside of mm-hmm. Festival, maybe never. So it was a wonderful location for an event uh, because it was rustic and just unique and sort of you you kind of it was just a, a neat little pocket of Winnipeg. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing at Fort Gibraltar because we're just four minutes from Portage in Maine, um, just right in Whittier Park where they do Festival de Voyager, tons of parking. It feels like you're out in the country. It feels like you're somewhere else. I mean, what they try to do is uh, interpret 1815 fur trade, and, and we have all those things at our disposal, that sort of uh, decor and ambiance to create great events like uh, the Winnipeg Beer Fest. So the there, there were brewers involved. Uh, my buddies at Torque yep. Brewing, Little Brown Jug, uh, Peg Beer Co., for example. Those are the three winners. Uh, Torque Brewing yep. had uh, finished third place with the Witty Belgian. Little yep. Brown Jug was second. And then Peg Beer Co. was the winner uh, with, uh, what was it, the G&T? Yeah. G&T Goose, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a great, I mean, all the beers were fantastic, but they were, they were the winner. Uh, and it was the people's choice. So everyone had... Uh, Beer caps. They had five beer caps. They put it in the, in, the, in the slots for the different beers that they wanted. So it was truly the people's choice, and the people chose Peg Beer Co. Uh, GNT Goose. What is GNT Goose? Uh, is it something that is, first of all, is it available for purchase for anybody who might want to try it? 
so that beer is available um, at the tasting room at uh, Peg Beer Co. Uh, and it's it's a blend of different hops and things like that. They'd be able to explain it more than than I will, but it was it was really good. It's a spin on a traditional beer that they've kind of made their own, uh, and uh, it was it was delicious. And then yeah, Little Brown Jug had their 1919. Uh, Belgium-style beer, and then uh, Torque had their Witting Bel- Witty Belgian, so it seemed that that kind of style did uh, did quite well at the festival. We yeah. had some sour beers that are different. We had a bunch of stouts, a bunch of heavier beers, but it was the yeah the people that chose the uh, the the gold, silver, and bronze. You mentioned stout there, and I want to I wanted to ask you this before I forget, and thank you for saying that because mm. it jogged my memory. Uh, when I I recently did uh, Brews Cruise with Winnipeg Tasting Tours, where yeah, we uh, started at Peg Beer Co. Actually, and I'm normally not a fan of stout beer, mm-hmm. but I found it with they when I was eating it or eating the flatbread pizza at the Peg Beer Co. with the stout. I found that they worked really really well together. Is that is that my imagination, or does stout and pizza go hand in hand? Uh, not yeah, that's not your imagination. I mean, they have different styles of using different sort of grains and different uh, techniques, uh, adding citrus, like for example, in the Belgian beers and different flavors um, to to enhance things and to pair well. Uh, so, like with with the beer and food pairing, you want to find some some items that are they're classic and inherent in that particular style that would then either pair well, match well together, or give this yin and yang kind of sweet and sour kind of flavor. Uh, to go with it. So no, that's, that's, uh, you know what, if you're just drinking beer, which was like more generic, that it was just all about alcohol and, and water and not much of, you know, characteristics, it's really not going to do much with the food. So it's interesting when the beer is paired uh, quite well with the food, it works well. I'm hungry. Well, oh my, actually. Yeah. Solid contribution, Tristan. Hey, you also had, on top of all the beer, you had Capital K Distillery, which is, where are they located, by the way? Is it, I think you said somewhere in St. James? Yeah, they're located in St. James, and, and uh, you can get you can do uh, tours. Uh, Jason, who runs things there, it runs a re- really great uh, place. It's the first sort of craft spirit uh, um, company that we've had in our province. They make a... Uh, uh, great vodka that's super clean and, and just delicious. Uh, they make a, a gin that is phenomenal. Um, that this you can put it up against any Bombay or Tanqueray gin, uh, and it would perform very well. And then they have a dill vodka that's just brand new uh, that we were making it into Caesars at the event, and uh, that was really well received. Um, Jason does a great job, uh, local local uh, distiller in our market. Now, when you have flavored vodka like this dill pickle, for example, mm-hmm. um, does that go against, I mean, and I know that flavored vodka isn't new, but does that go against what purists might have to say, oh, you can't have, be adding flavors into a spirit? Well, I mean, you know, but you're you're basically when you're talking about gin, you're infusing flavors into that gin already. Like it's a, normally a neutral spirit, such as you know a, a vodka, and then you're adding those flavors, anyways. I mean, certainly they're for different uh, characteristics. I mean, if you're doing a gin and tonic, you're adding tonic to it, right? So uh, if you're, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the flavors that are added, whether it's espresso that Capital K does, they're great for making into cocktails. But if you want just the clean, pure thing. The most pure way to do it is to age it in barrels and call it rye, and then basically you can taste the different flavors that make happen naturally rather than infusing. So the purists would like scotch or rye because this is just something they're naturally cured based on how they're stored, how long they're stored, and how you toast the barrels. So, you know, purists would, would lean towards there, 
But if you're just mixing it with different things, man, that Bill Vodka was great in that, with that Caesar. Sean Branson is the organizer of the first ever Winnipeg Beer Festival. He's also the caterer at Fort Gibraltar, which is where the beer festival was. Just hang on a sec, Sean. we got to have a quick look at traffic as well as weather. And then I want to get more details on this poutine cup. So do mentioned. I. <laughs> yeah. Tristan just heard poutine cup, and his ears perked up. Instead of my stomach. I hope you can't hear it. I have, mine's grumbling, too. We'll do that starting in two minutes. Up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones. We are joined by Sean Branson, who is the caterer at Fort Gibraltar and the organizer of the very first Winnipeg Beer Festival, which happened this past Saturday at Fort Gibraltar. I had the pleasure of going to this great event. And Tristan has a question for you, Mr. Branson. Well, Sean, I have to admit, the reason I was so quiet in the last segment is because I was... uh salivating a little bit over the discussion of the beer flavors and i think mm-hmm. i may have zoned out for a second or two there but you mentioned the poutine cup now i'm yeah. i'm very picky when it comes to my poutine so if i were to attend something like this do you think i could find the poutine that i'm looking for uh, i think you would find um unique poutines that are different than other ones you've tried before uh, i think uh there's a variety of different poutines if you're um uh there's there's many different styles. Like last last year, the one the, the poutines that won was a kimchi Korean p- kitchen party, which had kimchi different flavors and stuff like that. Moroccan lamb was the other one that won with uh, sort of a Moroccan inspired lamb. There's a lot of variety, but certainly they're stretching the limits. I mean, we had lobster and foie gras and poutine. Uh, it's just a sort of poutine elevated. Uh, we've yeah, so you'll you'll find a variety of different things. So that's happening September 14th, also at Fort Gibraltar. Yeah, September 14th. We just announced today that the tickets are going on sale on Sunday at 10 a.m. And uh, last year, the tickets sold out in 26 minutes uh, via our website and that sort of thing. So that being said, we were at 500 people last year. We're going to probably sell it to about 700. So there'll be more seats, but there's also a lot of demand for this event. And it's poutine, um, you know, people's version of poutine elevated. Uh, but using, um, we have local potatoes that are that are donated from fresh options. We have Boswell cheese that's donated from Boswell. Um, we have, uh, you know, all different things that are that are given. We have half pints there uh, with beer. So they they get a lot of the, the common ingredients, but then they just escalate, elevate it to another level. So the the beer festival, you said you had 550 people at the first ever event. So typically right. an event like this, they, they can only go anywhere, but they can just grow. So mm-hmm. uh, is Fort Gibraltar big enough to continue to host this event if it were to get any bigger? Well, I think that we're, we, we're going to grow it a little bit, but not too much because we still want the intimacy and that sort of thing and being able to access the beers and, and the food. We're, we're adding uh, another two restaurants this year for Poutine Cups. So we're going to be at 12 restaurants. Uh, we do have a waiting list of restaurants that want to participate in this event. So, you know, opening it up, uh, the space to more people. Uh, last year, we only really utilized half of Fort Gibraltar, just the area in the front by the veranda. And then this year, well, with the Beer Fest, we all opened it up. We put speakers all around the entire building, and people were, were all using the entire space inside the fort walls. So I think we can increase it by a couple more restaurants and a couple more people to enjoy the poutine because it's hard to get tickets. That's the issue. Where does one get tickets? Uh, you said they, they're available this Sunday at 10. Yeah, you can go onto our website at uh, poutinecup.com. Um, you can sign up for our, for our newsletter uh, and that sort of thing to be notified when the tickets are. But we we just uh, no- mentioned today that they are going to be on sale this Sunday at 10 o'clock 
The tickets are going to be on Eventbrite. There's a link from the website, or you can just punch in Poutine Cup on Eventbrite. Uh, make sure you're at your computer because the computers operate much quicker than cell phones. And we found that over 80% of the tickets last year were, were bought from computers because they did go so fast with 26 minutes. So, Sean Branson, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Sean Branson is the caterer at Fort Gibraltar. He is the organizer of the Winnipeg Beer Festival and as well Poutine Cup. And again, I'm at that website right now, poutinecup.com. The first ever beer festival was a smashing success. I was there on Saturday and it was a lot of fun. And Poutine Cup also sounds like it'll be a lot of fun at Fort Gibraltar. It is 323. We'll check weather and then sports up next. Brett McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones. We have some... Oh, Tristan's got the squeaky chair this week. Oh, dear. He's <laughs> trying to pull up here. It's like... <laughs> we have some stuff to give away. Let me just cue up some music here. I'm determined to not play Jesse's Girl. It's Rick Springfield. The song is called Don't Talk to Strangers. And Rick Springfield is going to be coming to Winnipeg next week, Wednesday, August 30th, at Burton Cummings Theatre. We already have people calling in. They don't even know what the question is. Oh, well, they they need to be able to answer the question. And it's actually, we've alluded to it already. Oh, is this the, uh, hang on. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy going down memory lane this week. All right. I'm going to fade that down just a touch here. So Rick Springfield coming to Winnipeg next week. And the question is, normally I like to go with questions that are related to the musical artist or whatever the kind of prizes we're giving away. But today we're going to stick with the eclipse. Pretty simple. When was the last total solar eclipse in Winnipeg? I need to know the date. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. I need you to call 204-780-6868. When was the last total solar eclipse in Winnipeg? 204-780-6868. How specific do they need to be, Brett? They need the date. They need the date. You got to name the day, the month, and the year. 204-780-6868. So while Rick Springfield is playing here, I'm going to put you on the spot, Tristan, but I know oh, good. I uh, my exploration of southern Manitoba in the last uh, five to ten years or so has been essentially through golf. Like not, like <laughs> all, every place I've been, every right. new place I've gone has been because of golf. Like I made the, cra- the joke the other day, I can... Uh, we were talking about Toulon for something, and I said, oh, nice golf there. Yes, or if yeah. somebody were to bring up Morden, I'd say, ah, I like Manawasta or Lac de Bonnie. I'd say, oh, Granite Hills. So if I asked you if you've ever been to the Pinawa Dam, your response is? Pinawa Golf, great course. So the reason I bring this up is you are, that's my sort of, that's how I explore right. southern Manitoba. But you are also rather adventurous with your exploration of southern Manitoba. And if memory serves, did you not have uh, another another trip planned for this past weekend? Not this past weekend, but the one coming up. The one coming up? Yes, yes, indeed. What are you doing? Uh, What am I doing is, uh, have you ever heard of the Caddy Lake Tunnels? 
No. So um, I think most people know where Caddy Lake is, but just in case, it's uh, one of the more famous lakes in the South White Shell. So uh, when you're taking the Trans-Canada east from Winnipeg towards the Ontario border, the first turn off is for Falcon Lake, and then the second one, I believe, is for uh, West Hawk Lake. And the thing is, Caddy Lake is kind of not exactly tucked away in there, but you have to sort of go up one of the smaller highways to uh, access it. And it's quite popular. As a family, I can, when I was a kid, we went there several times. So what happens is Caddy Lake is also connected to two other lakes via these tunnels that were blasted uh, to make way for the Canadian National and Canadian Pacific main rail lines that travel across uh, Caddy Lake and to ensure proper water flow between Caddy Lake and I think it's uh, South Cross Lake. Yeah, there's this uh, Caddy to South Cross Lake, yeah. Right. Right, exactly, and then there's another lake north of that. I don't remember the name of that, but effectively to, to ensure there's proper water flow... They there's bl- a Nora Lake. Maybe that's it. They blasted these tunnels in there. They're really caves, and they also serve as bat caves too uh, because of their right in the bedrock, uh, or the Canadian Shield, I should say. And what happens is uh, the uh, it, you can access it by boat. It's really cool, and the trains will go right above you. Because these are main lines, they're actually quite busy, so chances of seeing a train, especially during the day, uh, you know, are actually pretty good. And as a family, I remember we went there, and I haven't been there since then, so uh, I'm going with a few friends next weekend to uh, check out the Caddy Lake Tunnels. It's amazing to me how many people uh, have not heard of this attraction, because you just need to rent a boat, and yeah, renting a boat does cost a little bit of money. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you need to rent a boat, you need to take a look at the tunnels, but it really is a cool experience just to see how they manage the infrastructure to build, uh, the rail lines. Well, that's pretty cool, man. Look at that. A little bit of history knowledge, history lesson here and uh, learning of a new place to go. If I ever decide to, uh, to explore outside of golf, it would be, uh, I'll just can ask you, but you know, where I'm going to go with this, the white shell. Oh, no. Falcon Lake. Great yeah, golf Falcon course. Falcon Lake, great golf course. <laughs> Jason, who always texts us at 204-780-6868, is constantly telling me that I should go play there. I've already played there, Jason. It's a great course. I love it. I would go there more often if it was a little bit closer to the city, I think. But uh, it is a fabulous course uh, for anybody who knows. But now you know about the Caddy Lake Tunnels as well. Right, exactly. Do you have a problem, Brett? Yes, I have, I have an addiction. It's called golf. <laughs> Just not even trying to hide it. I have an addiction. It's called golf. I'd rather, well, hey, better golf than uh, smoking. Today, by the way, mm-hmm. Friday is day three. So uh, yeah, Friday is going to be day 300 for me. Of uh, smoke-free. Yep. Well done. You're almost a year. Yep. How, how do you feel? Good. You feel better? Yes. Nice. I do feel better. Did you replace the smoking with uh, eating or or have you? Well, I did, I did that already. I'm just, I, right. I still eat a little too much. I'm trying to level that off a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that'll be the next thing I try to tackle is to get rid of all that weight. Well, that congratulations. That's yep. that's not easy. There's a lot of people who say they quit and then they quit about 20 times or whatever it may be, and um, they never really successfully give up smoking completely. But, uh, wow. what Thank was you. So here's from someone who's a non-smoker. At what point in those 300 days, which one was the day where you came the closest to caving in? Um, I, I couldn't pick one. It's hard to single out one. It's just every so often there, there's, uh, 
you get the odd craving. I mean, most of the 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 ones where I came close to caving in were were at the beginning. I still get the odd cravings, mostly because I see people smoking or I associate. It's because of what I associated it with, right? Like right. I just had my golf weekend, and uh, that was, I think, the last sort of psychological hurdle I needed to jump over because that was always a tough weekend to go to try to go smoke free. But no, I'm good. So I just wanted to, to mention, make the connection between. I'd rather be addicted to golf than that, and I want to quickly congratulate Kurt Montgomery who has won our Rick Springfield tickets. Going to see Rick Springfield Wednesday, August 30th at Burton Cummings Theatre. The question was, when was the last total solar eclipse in Winnipeg? You needed to know the date, and Kurt Montgomery knew the date. February 26th, 1979. We will look at traffic and weather starting in two minutes. Wow, Julie Buckingham, do you think you're being cool right now? You guys look better this way. (laughs) Pardon me, I just sneezed. Well, bless you. <laughs> Julie Sorry. Buckingham, Richard Cloutier, joining us in studio. Wow, these are dark. Um, she's Julie's putting on the eclipse glasses because yep. she thinks she's cool. Well, I'm wearing a black leather jacket. No, Hello. Well, she's trying them on. She right. wants to see what... Oh, Richard is taking a picture, okay. and that's probably going to go on his Instagram. Yeah. And but she wants to see what they're like. You can't see anything. They're like, they're, like, they're nope. blackout. Unless you, look, unless you look right at the sun, you really can't see. <sighs> that's cool. Yeah, the only yeah. thing that... Uh, so, yeah, when I went outside earlier... And looked up, so it's all black except for the sun and the really eclipse. Cool. So that was neat. We'll, we'll obviously go. talk about the eclipse. We'll go down to Missouri, or is it Missouri? Depends on. From here, it's Missouri. Missouri Out there, yeah. it's Missouri. Uh, more on that, and we're going to pick up on our fascination with the sun and space today and talk to one of the senior people at the Canadian Space Agency about what's next. And I'll tell you right now what's next is the development of a space station near the moon that Canada is involved with. More on that story uh, in about 25 minutes. We're also asking for your videos. Get your twang on to win Shania Twain tickets. Got a couple of videos of people that were uh, willing to do some singing. And uh, so we want your still some time to enter either at our 680 CJOB Facebook page or you can email me, julie at cjob.com. We're going to pick a winner uh, after 5.30. So you still have some time to do some Shania karaoke with you by yourself, you with your best friend. One one is doing Shania karaoke with her dog who clearly (laughs) likes the song. You guys always get the big and, ticket items. Uh, wow. Well, guns and roses and uh, yeah, now guns and roses. You guys had guns and well, roses. Yeah, tickets. we did too, to be fair. But I mean, they just, I, I'm, I'm impressed. Yes. Yeah, so well, sometimes, work a little. sometimes you have to do a little bit of horse trading to get these things done. <laughs> and sometimes you got to do a little work instead of just picking up the phone and calling. You got to. Oh, oh no, that's a, that's a no. subtle shot. No, wow. no, no, it's not. Why no, was no. You come into the studio, no, you take not. my solar eclipse glasses, and it's now not. you're making fun of the it's show. This is outrageous. It's just saying it it's a good prize. <laughs> you got to work for it. By the way, what was your favorite part of back-to-school shopping? Tristan, I have the feeling that you went um, back-to-school shopping. I did, yes. So what was your favorite part? What was what did you like to get the most? The new protractor. No, actually, I never what did I like to get? I don't know. I remember just being miserable for all of it because I I I liked summer and you know, it wasn't But you were dragged to do the back to school shopping. Of course shopping. I was because it's like, well, mom, I'm old enough to stay at home. No, you're not. You come with us. Well, now I'm like I'm 16 years old. What are you talking about? Now you're coming with us. Your education's important. Well, I know it's important. That's why you're going to pick up the right supplies for me. Anyway, Global News' Brittany Greenslade did a little bit of that today. She did some comparison shopping. 
she'll join us. I always like to look at uh, the fancy binders. You remember the note tote <laughs> style binders? Oh, yeah. The binder is big again, like the cool technology or, that or they the have. expands ones where you can yeah. put your books on it and you unzip it. And See, you, that was my favorite part right there. He loved it, didn't yeah. he? No, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, he was just, I dragged. I'm, yeah, I'm, right. with, I'm with him too. Like, I hated, he was in the car. Always hated back to school, but uh, the, the back to school shopping yeah. for some reason hey, was fun. He was flash, in the car. Parents don't love it either. Yeah. yeah, you know, I will say this: what made me <laughs> he was what, already in the car saying, "Come on, no, we gotta no, get but, going." But what made me feel a little bit better was seeing all the other kids who were there dragged along back to school shopping, and they were clearly miserable. So I thought, misery loves company. That's okay. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, thank you very much. You too. They'll have the news from four until seven on six eighty CJOB. Just want to quickly point out, uh, we're getting a number of text messages here because we were talking about the Caddy Lake Tunnels, and yeah. uh, Tristan was was trying to remember. I put him on the spot. I, he, I just said, hey, are you? didn't you do this this weekend? And he said, no, we're doing it this upcoming weekend. Couldn't quite remember all the lakes. Getting a whole bunch of lakes here. Uh, a couple of people texted us at the same time that it is the four lakes in the Caddy Tunnel system are Caddy, South Cross, North Cross, and Sailing lakes and someone also suggests that you bring a whistle for the tunnels as well i believe when we rent a boat they include uh, that as part of your supplies as well so uh again really looking forward to it and um, the friends i'm going with they've never been to caddy lake or the tunnels so this is a new experience for them i haven't driven a boat in years well that sounds exciting well exciting and terrifying too because there's a there's a 300 dollars deposit and i can't afford that yeah well and i and i know how aggressive you drive uh, an automobile so i'm i'm I'm, i fear for the lives of your friends if you're in a boat i also want to just very quickly mention this text message and thank you to everyone for the text that you received today uh they say i thought this might be interesting to share i heard this on an american talk show today but apparently the last time a total eclipse was over the USA and only the USA, like this one, was 1776. So no, I'm just reading this, no fact-checking whatsoever. Right. But that sounds like it... it I, oh, that's, I, that's pretty cool. It sounds if that's entirely the, probable. If that is the case, that is, that is pretty cool, yeah. I so, mean, this was known as the Great American Eclipse because... The eclipse the, of the century. The path, well, if you listen to CNN, uh, the path of the to, uh, path of totality was entirely over the continental U.S. So, yep. yeah, very cool. Thanks for the tidbit. I appreciate it. Thanks to listening to Mackling and McGarry with guest host Tristan Field Jones. I'm Brett McGarry. Jeff Forte in Master Control. Savannah Pierce. Before that, Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. Coming up next.